those of you who uh, haven't been here before, maybe I'll just say a couple of things about how this night um, came about. A few years ago, um, I would have been part of a, you know, I spent a lot of time in churches in my life and being, as they say, good living for a living. And uh, I thought, wouldn't it be in, in Belfast wonderful to have a space where people could come where they didn't necessarily need to carry a label with them of what they were or weren't, um, where we were people desiring to kind of find a sense of where the city needs to go a place where Protestants and Catholics could come, where people from other countries could come, where, where new visitors to our community could come, where people um, who didn't feel they fit in could, could be in a space. Um, and we could sit and we could talk, we could discuss about faith, we could hear music, we could hear art, we could hear stories, and we could build a sense of community among us. And so we've been doing that for a few years and much more intentionally since COVID. And we've found a little home, I guess, the upstairs in the pavilion seems to be where we've landed. And it's lovely to be here. And in the summer, it's nice when the sun comes in. Great to have all of you here from many different places. Uh, every evening, we give the, the, the night a theme. Uh, last month, we talked about the cost of living crisis and we called it the cost of loving. Uh, we've talked about the Ukraine war, we've talked about elections, we've talked about things that divide us. Um, but tonight, the theme, which is kind of a loose theme, it doesn't have to be like very rigid, but the theme of tonight is sacred space. What does it mean to live uh, in the world we live in and find all the moments of life to be holy, to be sacred, to be cherished and to be expecting uh, beauty to emerge in the most mundane of places. So that's what we're, we're doing tonight. Just to also say, I, <laughs> I do a podcast called Guardians of the Flame and every now and then we film things and tonight is actually being filmed. So Josh has very discreetly got a camera at the back. Um, so if you don't want to be filmed, don't worry, you're only going to get the back of you, but um, I hope that's okay. But just to let you know that that's happening. Um, okay, our first, what we're going to have first is a brilliant musician who played here last month for the first time, uh, old friend Maria, who's actually from the same state of America as Bob Dylan is from, if you, anyone can guess where that is. Um, and, uh, and she's a brilliant artist. I first met her in Ross Trevor. She's living here with her husband now in Belfast. Please give Maria Nicolay a big round of applause. Just going to plug in my weapon here. Did anyone remember or have a guess where Bob Dylan is from? Oh, who said Minnesota? Yes. We've got multiple correct answers. Yes, it is Minnesota. Um, this uh, first song I'm going to share with you tonight, um, I didn't know much about the theme, just pretty much what uh, was on the post of Sacred Spaces. Um, and 
I, I guess I've always kind of been drawn to the outdoors as sacred spaces. Um, but I think there have been times in our world where sacred spaces were just considered in a building. Um, and I think that is maybe changing now. Um, but yeah, I just was kind of thinking if, if you were being distracted by what you thought was maybe a sacred space or what you hoped would be a sacred space, but you were missing maybe something else that you'd never experienced before, um, what would that kind of be like? So this song is a bit of that perspective. Unsatisfied with senseless, silent nights You won't take more than you've got to give All it takes is a little faith to jump right in forth you're losing your mind give up all you have for what you'll find you're closer than you've ever been step into the light Cause don't you see it would be a crime to leave me standing here, to leave me standing here, to leave me standing here, to leave me
They're beckoning Your song they sing Hunger in their eyes Oh, don't you see That it would be a crime To leave me standing here To leave me standing So far off, boy, you cannot hear me cry So distracted by the need to tow the line But turn around, can you hear me now? I'm screaming out Oh, don't you see You were made for me So this time Far off boy, step into the night. Thank you. <clears throat> well, this next one um, is just a song about Belfast. <laughs> um, yeah, I have never particularly loved cities, but the first time I came to this city, I just absolutely fell in love with it. So this is kind of my little ode to Belfast.
Down by the train tracks I wander As the rain lays siege to my coat I can hear the rig in the shipyards As it bends and men carefully mold As I reach the river I follow Under roads and past sleepy boats My feet take me o'er the white bridge For they know the way to go In my city, in my city Yeah, it's where I love to roam In my city in my city where I'll never be alone In my city, my city Yeah, I don't mind the cold In my city, in my city Yeah, Belfast, bring me home The sun breaks on the horizon Like a story ever told And the clock tower watches over all As the streets turn busy and bold In my city, in my city Yeah, it's where I love to in my city, in my city, where I'll never be alone. In my city, in my city, yeah, I don't mind the cold. In my city, in my city, yeah, Belfast, bring me home. I stare out my window at the street lights bright down below and I think of all of my people and the love and light their hearts hold for my city for my city it's where I love to roam for my city for my city where I'll never be alone For my city, for my city I don't mind the cold For my city, for my city
me home. Thank you. This last song um, I was not going to play this evening, um, but it jumped up and got me. Um, I wrote this song in 2016, uh, or thereabouts. The word of the year in 2016, anybody know that bit of trivia? Ooh, it's not really worth knowing. But um, the word of the year was post-truth. Um, yeah, I forget which dictionary decided that, but um, post-truth as in, well, look up the definition because I will butcher it. Um, but just kind of this idea of struggling to find what is true, I guess, um, that seems to be relevant in a lot of places in the world, and I think still is. It hasn't changed much. Um, but uh, I have to explain that, because I use that word one time in this song. It's the very last line of the song, and you'll hear post-truth, and it doesn't mean go on Twitter and post about truth, or like any social media. It's not about that. It is actually a word, post-truth, so. Here it goes. <clears throat> Leave it to the famous few to tell us what to do. Define for us the truth. Leave it to the world's desire To hold them to the fire And label them a liar Or to turn a blind eye Why do we leave? Why do we leave? Leave truth to power and to greed themselves with care proclaim beauty is rare leave it to the lady fair to sell her face and hair and strip her body bare as the ratings rise we stare why do we leave why do we leave truth to power and to greed leave it to the ones who choose to fabricate the news refusing to prove leave it to one man's delight to stir us up to fight don't question if it's right don't look them in the eye why do we leave why do we leave 
Leave truth to power and to greed Don't leave it to The poets and the priests Who help us to believe And follow our dreams Don't leave it to the ocean blue who calls to me and you to search for what is true the things that we once knew why don't we leave why don't we leave why don't we leave why don't we leave post-truth for truth that sets us free. Thank you very much. Okay, one of the ingredients that we've uh, incorporated into uh, uh, Borderlands over the, the few months or a couple of years that we've d been doing it is um, kind of reflections or the odd little story. Um, not unlike uh, sometimes you'd go to, if you go to 10 by 9, which is a brilliant event that happened in Belfast, and my wife every now and then tells a story at 10 by 9. And uh, so when we started doing Borderlands, I said, said Jen, you've got to tell her story for uh, for Borderlands. So she occasionally would turn up on nights like tonight and tell a brilliant story. And tonight is one of those nights. You're very lucky people. So I said, Jen, sacred space is a theme. Would you like to write a story about that? So this is what we have. So give my wife, Jen Clark, wonderful Jen Clark, a big round of applause. Hello. This is a story about sacred spaces. Put that over that way. One of the best friends that I've ever had came to me one spring in a maxi dress that she tripped over chasing her toilet training son. <laughs> we were running an event, and he'd bolted from the bouncy castle <laughs> to the garden, looking for a pee. I had my own baby son in a sling, so I couldn't move very fast, but I watched her stumbling across, laughing. <laughs> she shouted her son's name over and over, <laughs> and we knew that the pantless streak of lightning Zooming across the garden had little or no chance of returning it. She knew it, and I knew it. I'd just moved from Belfast, and I didn't have many friends in my new neighborhood. And still bereft at leaving my life, I had no real desire to make new ones. But she made me laugh. Her whole family did. I loved her mother 
turning up to a kids' event asking for matching butterfly face paints for their grandchildren. Granny had been happily and cluelessly looking after the baby whilst the toilet-chasing toddler unfolded. And to be honest, Granny's still a little bit like that. <laughs> She's happy and at times a bit clueless, but she always gives her attention to the things that matter, and that's mostly what's in front of her. So I invited Maxi Dress Mum for a coffee the following week, as Christians do. I'd a baby, she'd a baby. I mean, how complicated would it be, right? Until when she was in my front room, I overzealously plunged the coffee right over her lap, which she later joked I was trying to kill her. I mean, I was a little bit. She is an atheist. Um, but I tidied and served it up, only for her to look at me and exclaim, <laughs> I don't drink coffee. Okay, it's drugs, you know? It's drugs. And then I knew that I liked her. My youngest son was plagued with ear infections as an infant, and he had had that one, one that day, the day of the coffee incident, and he was so unsettled. I'd been used to other Christian mums offering their sympathies and consolations to his unending crying. But this one, she looked at me curious and said, what's wrong with him? <laughs> and I'd never had another mother address me in such a forthright way, but also profoundly non-judgmental. She had just blurted out what was also in my mind. And I felt a place to say, I don't know, I think maybe it's his ears. And a respite of welcome that was, for me, that it was okay for him to cry and for me to be still trying to figure out why. I helped with a parent and toddler that year and she came along and the chats between us, between caring for toddlers, she reintroduced me to the part of me that got excited about new ideas and saying, oh, 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 on the spot when I was telling a story. And the part that was always curious and not judgmental. The part that wanted to learn things. Alst while skiving her wee one off nursery in favor of building Lego forts and playing dress up, but never ever drinking coffee. It's drugs, right guys, it's drugs. Her answer to any of my ideas was always, yeah, let's do that. And when the kids were old enough to be in nursery school, we decided we'd take a spin in the morns, go hill walking. I mean, why not? We'd do a quick lap up and down the mountain. Surely, we'd be back in time to collect them. So we left just after drop-off. I had no clue where I was going as I just moved there. But as we walked, we talked of music, art, politics, culture, religion, her always asking questions about my life and how I'd come to be here. Why? Why are you here? What are you doing? On that first walk, I felt like we were two converging rapids, 
sometimes slow and windy, other times tumbling over each other's words in an effort to keep pace with our pace down the mountain. She kept up with me in all ways, her brain and mouth moved as fast as mine did, often sometimes faster. It was there in those sometimes hasty, energized conversations that sacred space for me was created and she became my soul friend. I won't end that bit by telling you our first trek up the mountain was also our most dangerous. By the second hour, we were wandering in the fog, lost. We trudged up the nearest peak and I said, oh look, there's the lock. We need to walk that way. She waited a few seconds. Nope, that's no lock. That's the sea. <laughs> and in slow-mo, we turned to each other, wide-eyed. Right, she said, I'm calling 999. I'm hungry. No, I said. I snatched her phone. We can't call 999. That's a valuable public resource. We can't squander it because of our stupidity. Of course, she ignored me, and she dialed it anyway. But thankfully, there was no signal. <laughs> and we laughed together. Again, it was a sacred space. So the morning ended with us finding the far road. <laughs> She'd only mentioned that us needing to find 5,000 times on the walk, the far roads, just in case you're ever lost in the mornings, just look for the far road. <laughs> and some poor lone cyclist that we leapt upon, simultaneously shouting, where are we? And do you have food? I'll leave it up to you, to said, you know, who said what? And we became friends. And we became best friends. Then our children became friends and our husbands. And we've holidayed together in the most rugged cottages, playing hours of cards round the fire. We've been there for weddings, funerals, illnesses, and celebrations. Collaborated on projects and committees and all sorts of things. We've fought, and we've stropped, and we've been the ones taking it in turn to carry each other. We were compatriots during lockdown, sneaking for walks up the mountain, watching the kids fire down in their, old, in their own world of lightsabers and gathered round outdoor fire pits, sledging and hot chocolates in the simple way that we loved life, music, art, and us made me feel at home. And as a, a disenfranchised kid from a fractured home, that to me was a holy thing, incorruptible and pure. We're not perfect and neither are they, but in the space of us together, we made it a little bit easier to live life, I guess. And isn't that why we've always sought to make temples? To help us understand the world. To make and mark places of sacred dwelling where holy things meet and in turn give birth to new things. 
playing cards, hot chocolates by the fire, scrambled eggs, trampolines, a space to be you. But what place is the spirit more present than an unequivocal welcome? No judgment in what you carry, just a welcome curiosity in how you carry it. And a friend by your side up the mountain, looking at each other and asking if you know where you are. And she definitely stole that cyclist chocolate bar on that day. Okay, I'm not going to do a magic trick with a uh, uh, chair. Um, we are going to have one more contribution and then we're going to have a, a short break. Um, I've invited a couple of people to speak tonight at different points. We're going to end later on tonight with Father Martin McGill, um, who um, is just a good man, a good citizen of Belfast. Someday they should give you the key of Belfast, Martin, I think. You know. If, uh, no, yeah. Um, but first, uh, I want to invite uh, an even more special guest than Father Martin, let's say. Um, maybe in some ways, uh, tonight, the theme of tonight in some ways came from uh, uh, listening to um, Azadeh speak about sacred space at a retreat in Corimila six months ago or something last March, uh, an interfaith families weekend that um, myself and the Heinzes were part of. And, very special moment, and and Azadeh uh, is a Azadeh Sabut is a academic and activist. I, I don't know how exactly to say all the things that she is. Um, she's spiritual. She's a woman of faith. She's uh, a Muslim, and she's from Iran. And it's a real privilege to have her with us and her husband James. But um, can I ask you to give a big round of applause to Azadeh Sabut? Hello. Okay. It's such a pleasure to be here tonight. The idea of this talk came uh, over a number of conversations that I had initially with David Hines uh, last year. I was supposed to do an interview with him and the interview was about everything but the subject of the interview. And actually, that interview evolved into a lot of conversation. And uh, through David, I came to know Johnny. And then through Johnny, I came to know all the beautiful families they have. And so the sacred space, let me start from here. Over the last year, I've done some uh, research and public history work in Ballinafai area in Belfast. I started to document some oral histories from people who have lived here, people who feel they belong to this place, and people who have a history with Ballinafai. In a number of interviews, I was shared about how fate has been critical to the life of Badinafai. And that was very interesting to me to, to explore and 
find out what actually that fate was. Because in a secularized world, we are often into an understanding that fate is something only f to be found in a private sphere. But working in Badinafai, I started to feel how that was part of the everyday life, but also how that had shaped the history. I recall this testimony, which was uh, validated in a number of others. One of the long-standing members of Balinafai community shared with me that during the years of trouble, when a member of a Protestant community had died due to conflict, I mean, had been killed, the Protestant minister was always accompanied by a Catholic priest to visit the family of the deceased and to take part in the funeral. I recall hearing that story, and I started to think of how accompaniment could be seen as a spiritual task. As people of conscience, we choose the people and causes we will accompany, sometimes throughout our lifetimes. It's like seeing and hearing their presence and thinking of our presence, how that makes God present to others. How we can form connections that act as a way of remembering how each of us can be a remembrance to one another. I started to think how we can remind ourselves and others of the deepest part of our being. And I take this uh, from the Quran, which says, in each human being, there is a meeting point with the divine. And that intersection is the heart. It is in the heart that the remembrance happens. Speaking of this, I would like to share some reflections on my own personal journey of the experiences of life in South Asia, West Asia, and short trips to the Balkans and Ireland, and how this has expanded my ideas of the sacred, but also has formed the many ways that the sacred can contribute to the life of people who are dealing with traumas, dealing with conflict, dealing with loneliness. I take you to South Asia. South Asia countries including Brunei, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia. There are close to 300 million Muslims living in South Asia, including, uh, this is of course only one of the religion, but the reason I am only focusing on Muslims here is because I want to share one particular story which is related to a market in Malaysia 
which is uh, run by women. And I want to share the story of that market and tell you how I see that market as a sacred space. When thinking of market, we don't often think of it as a sacred space. But let's listen to the story. For those of us who have traveled to South Asia, even Southeast Asia, places like India, we know that shopping is a significant ritual in day-to-day -day life. It is not just about purchasing goods, but a way of connecting, knowing, and communicating with the others. Shopping initiates a conversation where you, as a buyer, start sharing parts of your life as you hear from the seller. You don't just buy and leave. You engage in a lengthy process of bargaining, through which you actually share thoughts, sentiments, drink, and smiles. And it might happen that you don't even buy anything at the end. I have had this experience a lot of times in India. And at the end, when I didn't want to buy what I had asked initially, the shopper basically came after me and offered it for one-fifth of the price. And I knew it wasn't just because he wanted to sell something, but because we spent nearly half an hour talking about it. And he heard about me and I heard about him. And how that whole communication formed the way we spoke. And I recall once I had my shopping bags in my right hand, and I came to pay the shopper with my left hand. And he looked at me and said, can you pay me with your right hand? I just want to tell you about how that mannerism and communication is so much part of that ritual of shopping, which, looking at the way the shopping malls are constructed in a very modern world, that spirit is fully out of imagination. Going back to the story, look at those markets in Southeast Asia. This is where Islam came to Southeast Asia. Islam came as a trading religion with merchants and traders who traveled from Arabia, Persia, and North Africa. Historically, in Southeast Asia, there had been many women traders. When Muslim traders arrived to the East, they married the local women, who often had high standing in the community. And this led to a multiracial society. And one example is North Kalantan, which is a Western Peninsula in Malaysia, and bordering Thailand. The gold trade there is exclusively done by women up to this day. And most women you meet, they know better English than men. They know market Arabic, Chinese, Taiwan Chinese, and they're quite well affirmed with the multicultural society that they live in. This particular market, which I find interesting, is called Siti Khadija. Siti Khadija market 
is a local wet market that people bring fruits and vegetables and food stuff. Khadija is the name of Prophet Muhammad's wife, who was known for her trading and uh, business at a time. And this market is named after her and is mostly run by women. Looking at the market, at the images of the market, I would think how we can reconnect with the divine in that space. How can we see when the faith is expanded to the everyday ritual of women engaging in rituals, providing a space for the communities, for their children, but also for us to rethink about what the sacred landscape means to us in a place that rituals are not static. Coming to Iran, my own country, I've always been fascinated how the grand mosques are adjacent to the grand bazaars in every city. And I don't think that's just a convenience of a historical urban planning or uh, just a structure for a city. But I think there is something that forms this spirit and how the people in those areas have been imagining the sacred landscape. That the market is not disconnected from the mosque. And public space is what connects these two. And the people are what create that dynamic ritual between all this tree. Another thing which uh, fascinates me is that what is sacred is sacred for everyone. Like if you are in India and there is a mosque and there is a bazaar and then there is a temple, the whole area is sacred for everyone. Disregarding the religion because people are sharing the landscape. The shopkeeper close to the mosque might be a Hindu, but the shopkeeper close to the temple might be a Muslim, and so on. So here, I would like to think of how, by sharing the rituals and leaving the rituals, people are extending the sacred. In my own work as a researcher, I have uh, worked in a number of post-war geographies. And I have observed how the, how the faith is practiced as an everyday phenomenon and how people make sense of faith in their everyday life. How faith gives meaning to their everyday life. At the times that it's most difficult to keep faith. But also how people connect to each other through values given to spaces, times, and practices. What I've found is that living in so many places can give a different perspective to our understanding of the sacred. It also offers us an expansive view to the multiplicity of what sacred means to us. As a woman, who challenges the marginalization of women in institutionalized religion. 
this a struggle for exploring the multiplicity of the sacred has been part of my fate. And I have always tried to take inspiration from other women and other marginalized groups who have uh, found ways of spirituality that goes beyond the institutional religion. I look at it as a way of resistance. I look at the Sufi women, how they create spaces and rituals in their everyday life. When, for example, a lot of mosques are a lot of mosques are male-dominated. How women who follow a mystical understanding of Islam are creating those spaces historically has been quite of inspiration to me. But also in the modern world, feminist queer thinkers like Gloria Anzaldo, she was the first person who coined the term spiritual activism. And what does she mean by spiritual activism? Spiritual activism is an active contribution to formation of spiritual communities that struggle for personal growth and social justice. And an uplifting experience that reconfigures the positions of marginalized groups within the context of current spirituality by providing a creative and engaged space for music, for poetry, for stories of commemoration and hope. Creating a spiritual consciousness that connects spirituality to the everyday experience of people, to their friendships, to their families. This is in, in the context of a spiritual activism that the process of reinventing our spirituality allows us to reinvent ourselves, our human spirit, and provides us a platform to reconnect, to connect spirituality to the everyday experience of people and create spiritual-based communities. As Gloria Anzaldua says, spiritual activism is a way of making connections not only to the physical, psychological, and spiritual worlds, but also to political realities. And I think that's what makes it different. If you are a person who are concerned and are observant about the political realities, the accompaniments that you choose, the causes and the people that you choose couldn't be apart from your spiritual consciousness. I would like to end this conversation with a poet, with the poetry of Rumi, a Sufi philosopher and poet of 13th century. He wrote 
I believe we each make a covenant with God. May wherever you face, see the face of God. When I am with you, everything is a prayer. I am a prayer. You are the Amen. Thank you. That was uh, lovely, deep, profound, all those adjectives we could use. Thank you, Azadeh, so much. Um, we're going to take a short break. We'd love you to, um, to take advantage. The, the pavilion's very good to us, and it would be nice if we're good to them by buying their merchandise behind the bar, uh, liquid merchandise. Um, after the, the, the break, we're going to have uh, John McGrath going to sing a couple of songs and then a conversation with Father Martin McGill. So... See you in about five-ish minutes. It's a, um, it's a real privilege to uh, have um, John McGrath with us. I've known John for many years. Um, he's a good friend. He's a very gifted, uh, gifted a lot of things. He's a solicitor, advocates for people often on the margins, and he also is a brilliant musician, as is his wife. But she's sick tonight, so she couldn't join him. But we're real privileged to have John McGrath with us tonight uh, to play a few songs. So let's give a big warm welcome to John. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, thank you, Johnny. It's lovely to see you in doing the things that uh, I think make you feel alive. And thank you for all who have spoken so far i'm going to play a couple of songs for ten breaths of my wife who's much better than me but um yeah um these songs were written by both of us and yeah unfortunately you're only getting half of it because he's not here but um that's okay you don't have a choice <laughs> And we live and we die. 
Life is a shooting star Just passing by now Show me 
Thank you, John. John McGrath, everyone. I want to invite um, Father Martin McGill up on the stage, and I'm going to have a bit of a conversation with him. So let's give a round of applause to Father Martin McGill. Is that okay? Are you okay to hold the mic? I think I could manage that. Father Martin and I have been working on the script for this interview long and hard for the last few weeks. So we'll see whether this goes as well. I made well. a lot of progress <laughs> last <Yeah>. night. <laughs> we'll see if this goes as well as we rehearsed. <laughs> um, so tonight, uh, this is your first time at this event, Borderlands. Um, what is it, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> it's to be decided, to be discovered. Um, we were talking briefly at the interval and something stuck out to you about what Jen was saying. I wonder just what's your impression of, of tonight and, and maybe what you were mentioning something about Jen, what Jen said. Yeah, uh, and then what Azadeh was saying as well. And I, I think what was sort of striking me was that sense of encounter, that sense of when there's a real engagement. And I think Jen brought it out very well as wandering around in the morns. Mind you, the morns themselves, of course, will lead to that sense of the beyond. Um, and I suppose that sense, as again, listening to Azadeh and the experience of the conversation, and it brought me back to a, a, a Latin phrase which I absolutely love. Uh, it's, I'm going to quote it in Latin because that's why I learned it first, not that I'm a Latin speaker at all. Cor ad cor loquitur. Heart speaks heart and that sense of I think we move into sacred space whenever we really in a sense uh, just in engage at that sort of level and as I was listening to Jen and as a day I think I heard some of that mm. and moving into sacred space now we're in Belfast um, probably most of you would know Father Martin's one of the founders of the Four Corners Festival which is a great festival in February I think isn't it? We're, st we're starting at the end of January this year. At the end, end, yep, end of January. Absolutely. I knew I'd get that wrong. Um, well, it's <laughs> just the way it falls, John. Um, so, um, but, and so you know the city. I wonder in, in terms of spaces in, in even 
since you've been running the festival and obviously before your lifetime, what are some of the places in Belfast that stand out to you as kind of places where you've been struck, you've had moments of encounter with people or with God or, you know, what is in, in your wanderings around these four corners of Belfast? Yep. Um, so maybe I want to go back to something that Jen said a little bit earlier, which is the sense of, um, or sorry, it wasn't actually, it was your singer. Uh, remind Maria, me of your singer. Maria. Maria said, Maria, there you are. And I love this city. So before I say anything, I, I want to say I love the city. I grew up 14 miles from, from Belfast, uh, uh, very close to Loch Ney and the International Airport. So, but it really, for all intents and purposes, from 1980 onwards, I've been living in this city. So different parts, um, I suppose, uh, back to mountains. And I think mountains are sort of a bit of a theme for me at the moment. Cave Hill, living in North Belfast, some of those walks, uh, and just up at McArts Fort, looking over the city, that whole sense of the just the absolute beauty and the stillness of the city. And I'm just looking at it and realizing, uh, to quote uh, Dr. Heather Morris, this wonderful but wounded city of Belfast. Uh, at times, the lagon just wandering along by the, the lagon and, and the beauty of that and the peacefulness of that. Um, some of those encounters, I, I suppose I'm also, just to bring a sort of a more serious note to that as well, but I'm also struck, I think there are a few places in the city. So I ministered uh, on two occasions in the north of the city and very close to where there was a lot of trauma, a lot of tragedy in parts of the city. And it's almost as if the ground is still crying out because of the blood that has been shed. Sorry to be sort of so strong about that, but just feels there's still something there, that there's a piece of work to be done. Um, some parts of the city in particular seem to be almost like carrying a very heavy burden. Um, but I've really got to love the whole city and I've now developed a, an interest over the last few years of uh, street names and figuring out, well, why are street names called as they are? And if anybody is on Twitter at all, you'll see, sometimes see me on a Sunday afternoon when I go out take photographs of street signs. Why do they call whatever it is they call it? Uh, and uh, yeah, I was over in the, the north of the city, just off the Antrim Road, there's Lockery Court. I want to know why is Lockery Court called Lockery Court? So. Yeah, it's just an amazing city. Any any street name in particular stands out with a great story about how it got its name? Well, the most recent one um, in Titanic Quarter, uh, I'm really pleased with this one because I can now trace it. Uh, earlier this year, Titanic Quarter Limited uh, approached Belfast City Council. There's a formal procedure for doing this. It's in the People's and Communities Minutes to request that the new road, which connects with, uh, let me see, Sydenham, is it Sydenham Road? And uh, Queen's Road, the new road that's built there, could they call it Hamilton Road? And they gave the reason, and the reason comes from the name of Sir James Hamilton, who was uh, a very famous chair of the Harbour Commission in the 19th century. There was, I remember once on Twitter finding out that it was, it was like, um, it was an old name for Serbia or something. It's Serbia Street, isn't it? Yes, so in the west yeah. of the city, just off the Falls Road, you've got yeah. Serbia. And then, yeah. you know, one of the things is, I don't know what it is about us, but we, we call streets after battles for yeah. some reason or other. It's strange, but anyway. Yes. Um, I, I remember um, 
working with a friend years ago and we were talking about actually we were talking about father jerry reynolds and he said he embodies to him what what he was a catholic guy this my friend and he said he embodies what what the the vocation of what a priest is and and i found that interesting in the sense that i grew up in church spaces often and um often protestant and often kind of new church fairly unreligious and the person at the front who led the church was very much the leader. He was the guy behind the mic. Um, he, yeah, it was it was almost like a kind of charismatic CEO was the was the church leader I saw. Whereas the way my friend described Father Jerry said he's he's a what a priest should be, you know, I guess a shepherd or something. What what's your understanding or your of, of the best kind of sense of what your vocation of a, of a Catholic priest is and what your calling is? Uh, so uh, just before leaving seminary, I was ordained a priest in 1988. The spiritual director gave us advice, which a number of still quote him on. He said, I'm going to suggest to you two things uh, to be a good priest. One is love your people and say your prayers. Don't complicate it. Love your people and say your prayers. And I'm not sure if I want to go much beyond that. I thought you were going to have a really deep answer. That was, but that was good. But that was good. We'll remember that. I think we'll, we'll remember that. Love your people. And say your prayers. Say your Pray. prayers. Yeah. What's, what, is, um, what is for you, what does prayer mean to you? Um, and what, what are some of those kind of prayer writers who have, you know, if you like, or prayer guides who have been important to you? Uh, they keep changing over the years, um, and at this moment in time, I'm back to the ancient wisdom of Lexio Divina, more Latin. <laughs> don't know what it is, but Latin tonight. Uh, divine reading, uh, monastic tradition of a, a way of, of praying, and uh, I think that's come back to a few years ago when I was in North Belfast, really um, discovering the story of the poor Clares, who were a religious order, an enclosed religious order, living in North Belfast, arrived in uh, 1924 and left in 2012. And uh, just finding out about their life, they in some ways really sparked the interest in the contemplative. And in many ways, um, that particular way of praying is about actually helping people into contemplation. And contemplation is, is for all of us. It's not just for the select few. And I'm really loving that sense of just discovering that, rediscovering that, and really wanting to share that with other people as well. And I'm reading a wonderful book at the minute called Too Deep for Words. Uh, I've just started it about three or four days ago, and just finding they're the really nourishing. Um, uh, I think one of your giftings to the world or to Belfast right now is to start to come up with ideas and to get other people to kind of <laughs> do them with you. <laughs> One of which was um, a conversation, a good example before the summer is, uh, Johnny, I think we should do something about Peace Day, the UN International Day of Peace. And, um, and of course we ended up, Father Martin and I, and um, a, a bunch of people put on a, a wonderful, very special event um, on the 21st of September. Uh, and in, in court, it was very much an interfaith celebration as a day was there um, with music and art and and faith through the la languages of of different faith traditions i would have kind of grown up often uh, with a strong sense that the sacred sacred space faith was my faith everything else was 
was not quite right. At best, not quite right. <laughs> At worst, it was a lot worse than that. Um, but you're someone who I know really values the 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 prof you know the profound the the holiness in encountering people of different traditions. It's not diminishing your Christian faith. It's not saying, well, you know, we don't necessarily need to believe anything. I, I just wonder if you could reflect a wee bit on the kind of your en encounter with other faiths and why that's special to you, why it's important to you. Maybe is there a story in there of, of, of encounter that really opened your eyes in that regard? Well, I suppose if I go back to the word religion itself, and, and so often in the media, so often in public discourse, uh, we hear like uh, almost like we need to get rid of religion. Imagine there is no religion. Imagine there's no heaven, mm -mm, etc. Uh, and yet what religion is about is it's about bringing people together. It's about binding. It's about connecting. It's about uniting. And I suppose that whole sense of just over the years uh, realizing that it had got such a bad name. Individuals, I think probably just the journey I've had over the years, the people that I've, I've been meeting. Um, and I suppose there's a real sense of having uh, this idea that this city, because of what we've journeyed through, uh, because of what some of us have lived through. So I went to school in North Belfast from 1973 to 80, and then university 80 to 84 in, in Queens here. So that whole sense of being such a part of the city and seeing its journey, seeing the trauma, there's a whole sense of, we have a story to share, but that story can be shared right across the religions. And I suppose one of my peeves in the media is that they sometimes hear this phrase, this nonsensical phrase, the two religions, referring in a sense, of course, to Catholic Protestant. But the reality is we have such a variety of religions and religions which can, I think, uh, cooperate together, work together, find common ground in our understanding of the beyond, because none of us at the end of the day fully understands what is beyond. Um, a couple of years ago, um, we had a real tragic um, uh, incident in, in Derry, London Derry, where the journalist Lyra McKee uh, was, was shot. I'm sure many of you uh, remember maybe seeing on the news uh, Father Martin leading the service in St. Anne's Cathedral. Um, I wonder if you, I asked you before if it was okay for me to bring up this story because obviously her, it's you know it's we're talking about a human being and a very special person Lyra was to many people. What was your, uh, what was your memory of that time of being asked to to speak at the uh, at the service? Was it a, was it actually the funeral? Was a service for her? So it was a service in service in St Anne's Cathedral. In, uh, yeah. Uh, I suppose it's, it, well, the main thing is uh, Good Friday morning. Um, got Lyra had been killed the previous evening on the Holy Thursday evening in Craigan. And uh, just listening to the news the following morning, the real sense of shock of thinking, what? Lyra McKee, whom I'd been getting to know over the past year or so, I would, uh, I would have been aware of Lyra from Twitter, but then she actually came to talk to me in St. John's and we'd kept in contact, a little bit of banter as well. Um, uh, the last contact we had on Twitter was uh, she had been raising money along with others as well. So she was dressed up as a nun and uh, she had a very large pint in her hand and was sort of saying something like, uh, Martin, do you think could I get a job <laughs> in some of the local parishes? <laughs> that was the last encounter I think we had on Twitter. Um, so I suppose then the sense of shock, 
family then contacted me on the Friday afternoon to ask about being involved in the service and then the actual service itself. Working very closely with Stephen Ford from um, St. Anne's Cathedral and I would have to say the whole s hospitality, I couldn't speak more highly of the hospitality and support from St. Anne's that I received at the time. And um, I, I think it's important to say uh, probably most of us in this room have share some degree of frustration with our uh, elected representatives who, who don't have an easy job, but uh, you know, right now there is frustration in our society that we we feel like we live in perpetual gridlock and and the polarization. I heard Duncan Morrow the other day said to a group of people I was with that we're we're becoming more polarized again. We're going back to but back we're going back in time, um, and and that service of Lyra McKee was significant because you you gave very simple words and you asked a very simple question of why why can we not do better than this why can our uh, at the time the political parties were in in gridlock and then it's almost like the overflowing of that the cons indirect consequence is uh, extremists get radicalized and we end up with someone being killed and you were expressing i think and maybe what the truest sense of what a prophet is, you were expressing the frustration of many people throughout Northern Ireland and throughout Ireland, throughout Belfast and, or Derry. Uh, what were some of your thoughts as you prepared that, those few words? And, and, you know, and, and you knew probably that political leaders were going to be there. Um, I'm I was just, yeah. I suppose I feel I'm, I'm very blessed with, with friends across denominations, at least God, across religions as well. So uh, in preparing it, I made phone calls. Um, I talked to my friend Steve Stockman. I talked to the Reverend Harold Good. So the actual question, why in the name of God, does it take the, the, the death of a 29-year-old woman, et cetera, et cetera, that really came from a conversation, a phone conversation with Harold Good, uh, which became part of it as well. I also talked to Father Joe Gormley, who was uh, ministering at the time, had been to, to uh, for the, to, um, um, really ministered to Lyra. I think at that stage she had actually already died, and that was in, in Altna Galvin, uh, Father Joe Gormley. So I talked to him as well. So I had talked to a variety of people before the, the address itself. But I suppose what I would really want to say in some ways is that whoever decided to applaud and stand up suddenly gave those words a real power that I certainly didn't see. Um, and I had no sense whatsoever that that, that was going to happen. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, I think I can speak on behalf of us all Ed, who really appreciated you giving words to the, the heart cry that we had at the time. Do you have, um, we often talk about hope. Um, you know, we were also involved in another project you're involved with, with Carmela and myself and, and Shona, different. Alex uh, is the service of lament on the day of reflection on the 21st of June. And part of the, the idea with that service is we, we we remember the pain. We don't kind of rush ahead. But part of remembering the pain is to look ahead with hope that we don't have to always live like this. Do you, do you, what does hope mean to you right now in, on this day? What is this, Tuesday, the whatever it is, the 8th of November? Do you have much hope? Do we have reason for it? So let, let, me, let me just go back to that service itself on the, the 21st of June. And... Uh, um, I have to say I found it really moving. Um, immediately afterwards, I, I couldn't leave my seat. I couldn't leave my seat because I was in tears. 
and I was in tears because a couple of things had happened. I actually really moved, quite embarrassed because I was with some of my parishioners. And it was really fascinating because they had a variety of views. Uh, somebody wanted to pray for me, which was lovely. Um, somebody really wanted to say if you need to talk or whatever. But then somebody decided the best thing to do is just let him be in his tears, which I think is probably what exactly I needed at that stage. I was moved to tears twice in the service. There was a stage, I think, uh, that we had around about just as we moved into the silence. Um, one of the people whose dad had been murdered during the Troubles, I think, had brought along a little child. And didn't the little child start crying as we moved into the silence? And Alex Wimberley, who's here tonight, leader of the Carl Community Community, was one of the leaders of this, this service there. And was making sure we had enough time for that. But this little baby cried. Uh, I was quite upset. And just hearing that cry, the unfortunate thing was that the mum decided to, or somebody decided to take the baby out. And I, I did something I've never done before, which is I went after and said, please don't take the baby away. Please let that cry be heard. And as part of the service, there was a moment where everybody was invited to take up a, a patch, uh, just to remind us that sense of the, the whole thing of need of healing and the torn patch and all the rest of it. And the very last person to pick up was a little child. The, the family were on holidays and... Uh, uh, I think they're from Canada, I think. And they'd just been, they'd heard that they, they wanted to visit St. Anne's, they heard about the service, and their little boy picked up, very deliberate in the way that he was going to pick. None of the f his parents weren't going to do it for him, he was going to pick it up himself. That, for me, was a sign of something. That sense of that the young people, the children nowadays, are not living through some of the legacy that they're not completely spurted, but they're not carrying the same baggage, baggage that, that some of us had. So am I full of hope? Absolutely. Very much so. I mean, I think relationships at this sort of level are, 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 have really come on very well. And to quote my friend Steve Stockman, he will actually talk about that sense of things need to move up to Stormont rather than us wait for things to move down for Stormont because it's very much a stop-start process, as we know only too well. Brilliant. Um, maybe just to finish, uh, on the Four Corners Festival, it's, uh, uh, it, what could we look forward to? Um, what's the theme of it this year? And do you know, <laughs> do you have anything to say about it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, at all. That's yeah. the simple answer. You can look forward yeah. to it at all. Um, spent this afternoon. We're going to do an event for our post-primary school children in, in the Belfast area. They'll be invited. Uh, the principals are getting the letter tomorrow. Uh, they'll be invited uh, to send two pupils from each of the schools to Ulster University. They've been really very supportive of us, um, as has Queen's James. They've been very good too, so Queen's been very supportive as well. <laughs> so let me, let me mention that there are other options as well, just not just Ulster University. Um, so the sense of uh, they're coming to do, uh, they'll have a input on, well, they'll have a little bit of um, the, the dreams that the, those who were involved in the whole campaign to bring Ulster to, to that campus, the dreams that they had for the city. They'll hear a little bit about that to start with. And then they'll have an award-winning uh, photographer, Mal McCann, who actually, who's a very talented photographer with a smartphone. So they're going to be invited to bring their smartphones along. And he's going to teach them how to use their smartphones. And then they'll be sent out into the city in fours to get some photographs, hopefully learning so, uh, with some of the skills they've learned from him. That's just the very first event. But then we'll have um, 
we'll have uh, hearing about dreams for a church, Catholic Church at the minute is going through this synodal process. Final evening, former member of the uh, Corrymeela community, Interjet will actually be pre will be talking in St John's Church, and the final address will be the city where dreams can come true. So that whole sense of sending people out with a sense of hope and mission. Mm. I was just with Indujit today, ah. about three hours ago in Liverpool. <laughs> wow. And uh, um, it was one of those few days in the world time where I ended up going to another city for a day and then come back. Um, but Indujit was, he used this phrase, we need to turn hostility into hospitality. And yeah. uh, he's a former leader of Carmela, as Alex was saying to me, he's, a br he's brilliant coming up with these kind of one-liners. Um, but I, I thought that was, talk about sacred space, we, maybe they are spaces where we can see hostility turned into hospitality. So, Father Martin, thank you for, um, yeah, the, the presence of, of goodness you are in the city, um, uh, the, that you are a shepherd, you are a priest to, to many people, and you're a prophet as well, and you're a good man, and um, we really appreciate you. So, can you give a big round of applause to Father thank Martin? Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah.